thought to mention Nick Nick Lapthorne, uh, who's also a football uh, football buddy yeah. uh, of mine. Be a banter between you two at football. <laughs> well, you know, if we think we've got it bad, he's really got it bad with Plymouth. <laughs> Let's be honest. Hello there. My name is Kit Rackley. My pronouns are they, them, and this is Coffee and Geography. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people on this rock we call home and their love and passions of it. We'll find out why guests identify as geographers and if they don't exactly, we'll have fun exploring all the myriad of ways that connects their life to geography. So, pour your favourite brew, get cosy and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPot. Off we go. Hello, everybody. We're into May now at the time of the recording. Where is this year going? And today I'm joined by Stephen Schwab. So, Stephen, how are you today? I'm very well, Kit. How are you, mate? I'm doing really, really well. And this is really cool because Stephen's originally from London. We'll talk a bit about that later. I have a Cockney background. So if my accent slowly drops south, because I'm currently in Norfolk, down towards London. So I'm like, all right, mate, how you doing? And like, you know, just naturally the way it used to sound when I was younger. Then I, well, I was going to say I do apologize, but no, we don't apologize, do we? So <laughs> No, we don't. No, we don't. Proud of our heritage. So Stephen is an ex-high school uh, head of department, head of house and teacher advisor, now consultant and author of books and teaching resources, working often with the UK's Geographical Association, whom he's been with since the 1970s. And Stephen describes himself as a family person, Jewish and a football and music fan well i'm gonna go on the football bit because that's something we have in common Stephen. so i'm a bit footy mad as well but one thing we also have got in common as well is that neither of us can be accused of being glory hunters because i'm a Tottenham hotspur fan <laughs> and you're a crystal palace supporter yeah. <laughs> indeed indeed for those people not uh listening who are not familiar with uh, the place crystal palace so it's not as i used to think as a child you know a literal place that was made of crystal it's an area of south london that was named after a victorian glass and iron building uh, that unfortunately burnt down in the 1930s and actually i don't know if Stephen, you know this but the uh, the football team's nickname before they became the eagles was the glaziers that's a bit a bit too man united for me that really i know it sounds terrible maybe that's the reason why they changed it i don't know they changed they changed it to the eagles i think in the 80s or something i i did not know that so thanks for that um and I, I ought to say that um, although I support Crystal Palace, I'm, I'm from Northwest London, so it's ah. a bit of a bit of a conundrum. But um, just very briefly, they used to have a manager back in the '80s called Malcolm Allison, and uh, he was a very eccentric guy, uh, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, you have to look it up. And um, I liked him a lot, and I just started supporting the club uh, on the back of him. There you go. And when he left, I just carried on. Um, but I ought to say that I uh, I used to go and watch Arsenal pretty much every other week because they were the closest uh, Premier side to my home. If you're in the football, you know the rivalry between soccer. You're in, but you know the rivalry between Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal. If you don't or you don't care, then they are two of the biggest. I'm actually one of these football supporters who who doesn't 
hate their local rivals, I think it's pretty petty personally. And I actually, I actually yeah. like Arsenal as a team because they try to build success rather than buy success, and I respect that. Mm. Um, mm. So, but mm. and I, we could name teams between us who who have t- attempted to buy success, and 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 you've already. You've already uh, mentioned a, a city where that happens a fair bit, but anyway, mm. we, we don't want to we don't want to turn this into a football podcast. So, no, no, um, no. But I am going to bring it back and link it back to geography because um, there's this clip that I want to play you um, regarding Crystal Palace's uh, ex mascot, which was a uh, Kayla mm. the bald eagle, and and I think we could really get to town with some environmental geography side of things with this. So I'm just going to give the listeners uh, a listen to this clip. And if they're interested in listening to the whole video, there'll be a link in the description. So here we go. It's all educational, trying to tell you about where they come from, what they eat, the diet, and what man is basically doing to these. I mean, these came off the endangered list a few years ago, but uh, recently they've actually started to drop in numbers again. We used to have at one point 160 birds of prey there. We now probably have about 60 or 70, but she is always the first bird in in the display. Crystal Palace supporters have been brilliant, made loads of donations to help us out. So that was a clip there with uh, Chris Belzey, who's the handler, or was the handler, of Kayla the Bald Eagle, who was released during the start of games and used to swoop around Selhurst Park while the team were were warming up, which was quite amazing. And then the last person you heard there was Alan Ames, who is the founder of Eagle Heights. And they're a non-profit who looks after um, bald eagles and predators that can't be let to the wild. Unfortunately... Uh, Kayla passed away last year and that's why Crystal Palace and that caused because of lockdown that's why Crystal Palace no longer fly a bald eagle around their stadium but but yeah so let's have a little chat Stephen did you know about Kayla's history there? Yes I did I knew that used to fly around I knew that it doesn't happen anymore Um, obviously for very good reason since it's dead Um, but um, that those that those fans were taken to another level by by the presence of the bird, you know, and they obviously knew, and the handler would obviously know about about the birds. But the fact that the fans taking it on board in terms of learning more about the animals, about the species, um, and that leads you into a whole different level of consciousness, really, about ecosystems, or you know, about the reasons why they're endangered, and uh, and so you've got you've got education coming out of um, football culture, which is not obviously unique to, to to this story but it's it's a nice story yeah it's it's a really fantastic example of how football to, and and for those people listening who really hate football you know there are elements that about fo- the football community which they are a force for good. They do try and help the community out. They do mm. kind of mm. try to educate people. I mean, up here in Norfolk, you know, we've got Norwich City Football Club and and they are a huge part of the community up here. Like they don't just do football, but Carrow Road, their stadium is, you know, it's a it's a business park, it's an education centre, it's a it's an academy, mm. and they 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 run courses, you know, education courses, proper level two, level three education courses there. And yeah, they do a lot of stuff to raise awareness, you know, and, and at the moment they've got a massive big campaign, you know, regards to to racism, things like that, bearing in mind that was it Joshua Fashionu, I think, used to play for, oh, for Norwich City. Justin. Justin. Justin Fashionu. Yeah, so and obviously Justin Fashionu was uh, a black player, but he was also gay as well. So um so Norwich City are doing a lot of stuff to kind of promote um, awareness of that. And Proud Canaries, just yeah. want to give Proud Canaries a good shout out because they're a wonderful uh, LGBTQ group attached to a football team. 
uh, just to, to echo that, Kit, um, absolutely. I mean, uh, the closest, literally the closest club to me is Trammy Rovers. And um, if you look at what they're doing in the community, at the moment is obviously all the food uh, food bank uh, support that yeah. they're committed to, um, obviously also committed to anti-racism, um, as all clubs are. And, um, yeah, you have to be proud of that place in the community. Um, it does touch on education. It does touch on all sorts of social issues, which um, people who don't know about football tend not to be so, so aware of. Um, but they are, as you say, an incredible force for good. Yeah, and, and we can debate until the cow comes home about the wider issues and the systemic issues in, in football, but they're well documented and people can obviously go down that oh, road yeah, yeah. if they so wish. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Tramere Rovers. So that's up there. So you're, you're currently located in between Chester and Liverpool. So yeah, your local club would be Tramere Rovers. And, you, and as you said, from Crystal Palace stroke Arsenal to Tramere Rovers, not, not support, just in location. So tell us, what was the kind of reason for you to move up north? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how maybe your identity is shaped by where you are now and maybe compared to your identity when you were living in London? Uh, uh, that's a really good question, mate. Uh, so from the age of 18, when I went to uni, moved out of London via uh, two universities and then um, three jobs, all of them out of London, found myself with my um, wife and, and a young son in, uh, in, in the northwest here, um, in a job as head of humanities. Yeah, we've been here ever since, and it's, it's, uh, it's a lovely part of the country. Uh, you've got the cities nearby, but you, we're not in, in either Chester or Liverpool, um, and, and yet we've got the North Wales Hills, got the Lake District, I could go on. Um, now, my, my son and family are in Leeds. My daughter is in uh, Birmingham. So, you know, we're handily placed for all that. Um, as regards identity, in my head, um, you know, I'm still a Northwest Londoner, but I've got a great deal of affection for um, where I am now and uh, the people that are, that are here. I think the Northern folk are much friendlier than the... Uh, <laughs> Southerners, perhaps a bit of a sweeping statement, but you know, why not put it out there? Um, and and um, and I'm just we're just very happy. So uh, as I say, in my head, yeah, nothing's changed, but fundamentally, obviously, it has. I, I'm I am a different person having as a result of being out of London compared to probably how I'd have been if I'd stayed. Oh, before we move on further, and I forget. Uh, this podcast has been named, of course, Coffee and Geography after a Twitter poll because, you know, we are attempting to map our brews and beverages and people can see on the map that you're located so centrally to, to all those beautiful places. So um, now I've, I've, I've talked about the brew that I taught on another previous episode, so I'm not going to mention them again, but I will mention my cup. So I'm showing the camera to Stephen so Stephen can see it. But for those, of course, who can't see it, it says world's okayest geography teacher on it and that was given to me by an ex-student called elise who always thought that she was funny in all fairness she was she she was a she was an absolute delight to teach and a and a character so elise if you're listening i'm still drinking out of the mug you gave me all those years ago what <laughs> 10 years ago or was it now so stephen what is what is uh, the kind of brew or tipple that you like to dive into i'm absolutely a coffee man i will drink tea but you know, it doesn't actually do very much for me. Um, 
I'm a, so so I'm a coffee man, and um, currently the coffee that 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 I'm buying is from uh, a shop in Chesterfield. We we discovered, um, and I'm currently drinking a Sumatran blend, uh, but I'm happy to try different things. I like the continental coffees. I like the French. Um, and uh, as long as it's strong and sweet, I'm, I'm good to go. So is, is it got a brand or is it a generic brand or? It's the Northern. Okay. I'm going to give them a shout out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's, it's the Northern, Northern Tea Merchants in Chesterfield. Um, and, and although it's a, it says tea in the title, they've got all these coffees, um, which they'll grind for you, um, you know, for use in cafetiere and, um, as I say, it's a Sumatran blend that I'm currently drinking. So, um, a bit fruity, chocolate notes. We want to go there and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good for me. Excellent. Yeah, no, excellent giving them a shout out. Cause as I say, other brands and sources are available, but as when we put all these on the map, people can see how we're all interconnected around the world through what we drink. And of course, we can explore mm. the the advantages, disadvantages, and issues and everything that comes with all of that way of con- consumption. Trying to turn this podcast into a learning opportunity. What a surprise for a, for an ex teacher! Eh? No, no problem. No problem. I mean, coffee coffee is a a, a well known um, topic in terms of you know stuff and everyday stuff and where it comes from and what the cost is and um, the benefits that can be through fair trade, uh, which the, my coffee always is, um, you know, for for the producers and um, making sure that if I pay X amount for my coffee, that they get in a, a a very fair share of that. It's very important to me, and it means I won't go into you know certain um, coffee shops because I'm not convinced in any way, shape, or form that that they're about anything other than profit for themselves and. I, I'm not not wanting to uh, subscribe to that. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big advocate of in, of informed decisions and informed choices. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I do I do truly believe that we can well, we'll not make much changes to our standard of living to improve our quality of life and be more sustainable. I mean, there's there's I can I can talk about the kind of things I do here at home, but uh, but we're here to talk about you. So that's a really really good um, good point that you make there. I would I would say that. Um, my wife and I, my wife's also a geographer, I should, I should point out. We, um, we try very hard at home to, um, to be sustainable. And uh, my wife's been known to um, harangue the um, supermarket people for all the plastics that they're using. And, uh, and, you know, you have to wonder why, because it's just totally unnecessary, all that packaging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a really good segue, actually, into one of the things that identifies you as a geographer, obviously, other than your teaching career and all that kind of stuff, is you came up with this word eco-compassion. And that's a word that I really, really identify with, um, is the term compassion. And as and as we know, the uh, recent Geographical Association conference brilliantly ran and well done to everybody at the GA for running that. So for people yeah. listening, that's the that's a teacher's conference for, for not, not just UK geography teachers at you know, elementary, primary and secondary high school. But it's an international conference that people can join if they've got an interest in geography and there could be academics and students as well. But the theme for that was was compassionate geography. So I think this is a perfect time to uh, talk about what you mean by eco-compassion and why that's important to you. Yeah, um, I think probably I, 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 I stuck that word in because 
I wrote it around about the time of the conference, and um, I think it was it was very much foremost in my in my head and in my thinking. Um, if I have to describe myself as sort of a geographer, which I'm not always keen to do, I don't like this physical human debate. I think it's fake. Uh, it's fake news, if you like, and I'm not really interested. But if I had to describe myself as something, I'd say I was an eco geographer. Um, it, it's something that has been with me since I was. In my early years, I have to say, um, I mean, around about eight or nine, I was reading The Ecologist, which looking back on it, seems a bit of a weird thing to be reading when you're eight and nine, uh, instead of the Beano and the Dandy. But um, <laughs> I was reading it and, and I it was around the time, you know, not long after in, uh, of Silent Spring and um, then a whole catalogue of um, environmental disasters and issues that started to percolate into the uh, media. And even though politicians at that time were very loath to talk about the environment and and saw it as a sort of a non-political, uh, a, 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 there was no political advantage or traction to be gained from talking about it, and so they didn't really. Um, but even it, even though that was the case, say, as those disasters started to come through, it became very important to me, the environment, and um, when I started to teach, it was always something that I would be keen to discuss and debate and um, hopefully at least make students um, aware, as you said before, about choices and decision making and um, include the environment in their um, thinking. It sounds like for you as well, but for so many people who probably are listening to this and for me, I just can't fathom how what how and why you wouldn't factor the environment into all of your thinking and all your decisions because and we talked about this with with Kate Water um actually in the last episode about feminist geography and about why we call this planet mother earth and and you know mother nature and things like that it's because you know we do get nurtured by this earth and and any destruction to this planet is destruction of ourselves and and we see that mental health issues are in the increase in lockstep with destruction of the environment um and teaching and learning and engaging with the environment just has benefits 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 you know yeah you're right i think two things i wanted to say which i haven't already said about the about the environment and eco compassion and eco geography one of them is um uh, it's very important to me that the message that you're giving out in the classroom contains a huge dollop of hope. Otherwise, one just sort of um, falls into a trough of despond and the students fall into a trough of despond and, you know, it, it, it becomes, uh, well, you described a rabbit hole earlier. That's quite a good description. Uh, and you, nobody can see any way out. And so I think it's very important that one's talking about solutions and or adaptation, mitigation, things that will make the student's future better rather than simply saying, okay, we get to 2030 and then sea level rises and polar bears die and we're, you, know, you can go on and on like that. So that's one thing. The other thing I was going to say, I've always, I was taught it as such that um, students are absolutely part of the, um, the whole. And um, if you unpick one bit, then, you know, it all comes, comes undone. I think they have to see themselves as being obviously a very influential species within the um, Earth's ecosystem, if you want to use the sort of Gaia uh, theory, um, and that 
yeah, we have major responsibilities within it, uh, rather than being somehow detached from it in, in the sense that, and I'm going to be a bit controversial here, so some people will watch planet Earth or watch, you know, environmental programs remain detached from it and say it's terrible, but they don't actually see that we take people in general. Obviously, we're often the main cause of the issue. So I think it's important that students are placed, if not centrally, uh, when we're talking about the environment, definitely within the environmental equation. Personally, I don't think that's a controversial statement. So I, I, I can think of many people that bounce into my head who watch those programs, post stuff on Facebook, social media, that's terrible, don't then follow through with, with actions. I was thinking about James Lovelock's Gaia theory, actually, as you were talking, and I was going to bring it up, but you mentioned it yourself. I don't subscribe to Gaia theory, but I find it absolutely fascinating, and I strongly recommend people do read James Lovelock's uh, stuff about Gaia theory, because even if that theory doesn't pan to be a truism, it's still a fantastic way of, of explaining and exploring the way that the world is all interconnected with itself and how we are part of an organism rather than outside of the system. And I just think that Gaia theory is something which really does give you food for thought in that respect. I think absolutely. It was a step change at the time in terms of thinking about the environment. And as you say, one might not wholly subscribe to the whole thing anymore, but at the time, and I was still teaching then, at the time, it was a major environmental change of thinking and also changing the way that we taught about the environment. And just so if people are not aware of the Gaia theory or the Gaia hypothesis, James Lovelock was one of the uh, who came up with it. But just to read the definition here so people get an idea what it is. So the Gaia paradigm, also known as the Gaia theory or Gaia principle, proposes that living organisms interact with their inorganic surroundings on Earth to form a synergistic and self-regulating complex system that helps to maintain and perpetuate the conditions for life on Earth. So, you know, it's not far from what really happens. I think the people that find controversy is that the, the, the Earth itself is a living organism where people push the Gaia theory a bit further in that respect. But still, I love that those that word, the synergistic and self-regulating complex system, mm. because mm. everything is interconnected, everything is interrelated. And you can demonstrate that to your kids by doing, you know, for the very, very young, by doing, say, food chains and food webs, teaching uh, year nine Antarctica. We used to take a food web. We used to play around with it. So we had cut out animals, symbols, arrows and stuff like that and we had different size of arrows we had different size of animals so i said right okay if we swap the krill we make we overfish them so when we replace the picture of a krill with a smaller picture of a krill you've now got to swap everything else out in that food web we did that for a whole hour just swapping things in and out for food web how disruptive a small change can be mm. i think that's a lovely idea in terms of making something which is incredibly complex i mean any any food system on the planet is, is, is incredibly complex uh, for students to get their heads around. And to play it as you played it is going to mean that they're probably carrying that in their heads right through their lives. I'm sure of it. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to go and talk about random stuff now. So using a random word generator, I've come up with five random words and you can talk anything about it. So I call this, using my puns, my terrible puns, I call this little feature jog on. There's five topics. You have to talk about three of them and you can skip two. So if you want to talk about a topic, you say, jog on, please, Kit. If you don't want to talk about it or you want to skip it, you say, take a hike. All right. 
I've forgotten that already, but never mind. <laughs> Go on. But you can only skip twice, right? The first topic is improvisational music therapy. Do you want to jog on and talk about it or take a hike? Take a hike, mate. <laughs> Trust me, these are completely random. Now, the next one you probably want to jog on because it's a little bit, I think it'd be a bit easier for you to talk to. So the next one is dolphins. Well, they are, uh, so I so I learn, incredibly um, intelligent. And uh, there's all sorts of stories about how they can be trained to do this, that and the other, carry weapons, uh, which is not yeah. a great thing, but also, but also um, do the good stuff, which escapes me, but never mind. They do it. And, um, and they're also <laughs> cute to look at and very friendly. I like the idea that they, uh, you know, they'll come up apparently alongside a boat and chatter away and communicate and uh, communicate with each other. And the, there's all sorts of um, wonderful stories about dolphins. They sort of chitter chatter, uh, which is quite delightful to listen to in itself. I'm a sci-fi nerd, and I really do strongly believe that at some point we will be able to actually like communicate two ways with dolphins. It's for the, for the old 80s TV show Sequest DSV, and, uh, and in Star Trek as well, they have well, even though they've never been seen on screen, they have dolphins on their on their starships. And uh, and I do do believe that actually we will be able to have a two way conversation with them at some point in the future. I hope I live that long to see it. To be honest, yeah. Well, well, funnily enough, um, I, I opened up my. Um latest edition of natural geographic uh, Ooh, okay a couple of days ago which my my daughter has kindly um given me a subscription to there's a there's, uh, the whole issue is about whales uh, which i really love i i love whales um more than dolphins um so so i'm going to talk about whales now okay um which uh, love the love the sound of whale music and in fact I've, i have uh, two cds of whales uh, singing in, in the oceans one is in a song by um a singer that you probably don't maybe you do know judy collins oh yeah yeah um american from the probably 70s 80s really but still still singing actually and she did a song which included various whales singing in the middle can't remember the name of the song which is a bit frustrating probably if you type into google whale song judy collins it will come up but anyway the other thing i was going to say yeah the other cd is purely whales singing and it is very calming and it's i find it delightful um and i'd like to think in the future that um i could communicate with whales in this in this magazine i noticed that they've got musical notations of some whale uh songs that have been recorded and that's something new for me i've never seen a notation written down so i'm going to study that quite carefully wow and with my limited musical um ability you know I can practice that and get ready to uh, to to start, you know, communicating with whales <laughs> at some point. Awesome! I'm gonna have to check that out myself. So the third word. So you've passed on one. You get one more pass. The third word is politics. Honestly, that came up randomly. So are we gonna skip oh, that? Or no, no. Let's uh, whatever the thing is. Jog on. Jog on. It. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Try not to be too uh, too controversial. I'd have to say. Uh, I probably am a political beast in the sense that um, when I watch the news, the politics is one, not only in this country, but, you know, globally, politics is incredibly important, I think. I I mean, I'm a great believer in um, keeping up with the news for all sorts of reasons, personal reasons, but also 
educational reasons. I think as geographers, we have a duty to be um, as up to date and correct with our um, information and, and you can't leave the politics out. Um, so I think I would say that I taught politics with a small p in, in my teaching, um, not because I was trying to make students into, you know, politics type A or politics type B, mm. but because you can't talk about, I think, pretty much anything um, that's going on on the planet without including the politics behind it or in front of it or going on at the time. And, um, you know, students need to be aware of that. I think it probably is helpful in the sense that they realise that they can't leave politics out of their own lives. When I hear young people say, oh, I've never voted, I can't see the point and all that, I get, I get frustrated because um, clearly there is a point and um, you may only have one vote, but might, might make all the difference. So um, politically, I, I do take a great interest. I'm not, I'm not here to talk about, obviously, my own beliefs, which I, I think are quite strong, but... But I think the important thing, as I say, as a teacher is present both sides, all sides, um, and, and get students to realise that, you know, politics is a is a very important strand in decision making, in what goes on and what doesn't go on. There are a few subjects at school, aren't there, where you cannot avoid teaching controversial issues. And geography is certainly one of those subjects mm. where you where you cannot avoid teaching controversial issues. And one thing that makes them the controversy is, is politics. And and I totally agree there. That's the way I do. You, you don't just present both or all sides of the argument, but you also present using fact bases and evidence what the consequences of those attitudes, actions, manifesto pledges would be if they were to be followed through. So, And then you then say, once you've done all that, you then you'll, you'll facilitate the children make their own informed decisions. So I think that's a lovely answer of politics. We'll, we'll leave that one there. So there's two left. You can skip one of these. The fourth one is printing. What kind of printing? If you want to talk about this one, it could be up to you or you could just skip it. Okay, this is a bit cheeky. So if I know what the next word is, I can tell you whether I'm going to skip this. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, mate. Well. No cheating. Uh, no. Okay, skip that. All right, so taking a hike on that. All right, this, the last one will be quite interesting. The fifth random word that came up was mining. Do we have to talk about mining? Let's do that then. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, funnily enough, the first school I taught at was in uh, North Nottinghamshire, which was at that time a massive mining area of the UK. So we're really talking history now because, sadly... The pits are closed, and so we're talking historically. But, but um, at that time, the um, National Coal Board was the main employer for students that came out of the school where I taught, comprehensive where I taught, and um, that was that was the case. And I actually went down a mine with a group of students, uh, geographical uh, field trip, if you like. Wow! And and we went down the local pit. And uh, absolute eye-opener in terms of the conditions. I mean, we're talking, it was a modern bit. Um, but I still remember when you got to the coal face, you know, you're absolutely bent over and uh, it was hot and it was wet and it was, uh, you know, I can't imagine working there for, for an eight-hour shift or whatever, doing incredibly heavy, man still with all the machinery, heavy manual work in conditions that were quite harsh. Um, and you know, absolute respect for the um, for the people that did that um, to give us our coal. Um, so that's one aspect of mining. I think the other thing I would say is that um, you know, as an environmentalist, 
um, I'm very aware of the damage which, um, whether it's open cast or deep shaft mining, you know, can do and has done, and the way in which companies, in some cases, have irresponsibly left um, waste material in the wrong place, or they've allowed uh, uh, toxic materials to come out from mines or to remain in the water supplies and come out through, you know, abstraction. Um, and, and there are countless cases which I've taught and, and you've taught where, you know, we say that in order to get X or Y, and, and nowadays it's all about the, the rare metals which we need for circuits and for mm. telephones and computers, which, um, you know, the Chinese are now going to the African continent to, to get and... Um, as any teacher will will tell you, and um, you probably wouldn't get through a year without teaching um, something about mining and and what it's doing to the environment and why we're doing it. Yeah, excellent summary there. Thanks so much. Unfortunately, we we are coming towards the end of our allotted time now. We're going to finish off with a last feature which connects the guests together, and this is where we we are all. Jo- I call this we are all geographers, really, because you can link anyone's life or any. Ep- aspect of someone's life or anything to geography that's the challenge so what we do is that we get a guest to come up with a word of their choice or a topic of their choice which might be difficult to attach to geography but usually guests do quite a good job now we had katie walter um on last episode fabulous katie walter um and we as i mentioned a bit earlier we talked a bit about feminist geography and she therefore chose her word to challenge you to talk about for 30 seconds is the word feminism. I know Katie will be listening to this wondering what what we're going to come up with. Do you want a bit of time to think about it before I start the clock or you think you're ready to go? Let's go. Let's go. All right. You ready? So you've got 30 seconds to talk about feminism for a geography lens. Ready? Go. Well, I think the first thing to say is that um, um, a middle-class male to attempt to um, say anything about Feminism is a bit like a bit sort of mansplaining, but um, having having said all that, um, the important thing in terms of geography is that you're including um, feminism as one lens uh, through which to look at the planet, um, and it's important that students are. So finish that sentence for us. <laughs> it's important that students are aware of all sorts of um, feminist issues that will naturally, without having to chew on them in, will naturally come up in all sorts of conversations Mm. that we have in the geography classroom. I just feel, um, as I say, a white middle-class male can say, but you have to put that aside and say, okay, the issue is important. I'm not mansplaining, taking it on as a, a very important educational goal that I ought to be delivering probably every day in the classroom, Yeah, every lesson. Thank you very much for uh, for that little tidbit there and uh, for recognising your privilege. <laughs> Wonderful, <laughs> Stephen. To finish off then, so what we always do, we, we want to ask you, of course, to come up with a word yourself for the following guest to, to have a challenge at. They've got their 30 seconds. Have you got something off the top of your head? So if, we, if we're talking about something in geography, I'd be, I would be quite interested to hear what the next person, whoever it is, has to say about um, faith in geography, and, and I'm, I'm aware that can be taken in the widest context. It doesn't have to be religion with a big R. It can be any sort of faith. Um, it could be religion with a small R, 
but um, you know, it depends on what the person wants to yeah. wants to make of it. But faith, faith in geography. Perfect. Yeah. And I think our next guest will really have a good go at that one. Uh, yeah. And one thing we didn't get the time to talk about, which which we may do if we do a follow up is is the fact that you are Jewish. And we, I'd love to kind of maybe in, a, in the future, follow up on that perhaps in a future series. So thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Um, can you is there any um, shout outs you would like to give perhaps your family because you're a family man? <laughs> well, do you know, that's where I was going to start. Um, so I have to I have to shout out first and foremost, my wife, Susan, who, as I say, is a geographer, we work together on, on all we write, and um, she's absolutely um, important, um, most important element in, in, in this pairing. Um, also want to shout out to my children and my uh, new granddaughter. She's a year old. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That changes your whole perspective on life. And uh, beyond that, I do want to shout out a few geographers, if you'll let me. Go for it. Um, don't feel bad if I don't mention your name. Be- well, okay. So here we go. Mention a few people. I first want to start by mentioning all the members of the um, GASPC who I work with. They are the absolutely uh, most professional, dedicated, talented team of geographers that I've ever come across. Just to mention from the GA, Alan Kinder, Jerry Krause, um, Sue Pike, um, from the RGS, my good friend Steve Brace. Yeah, I ought to mention Nick Nick Lapthorne, uh, who's also a football uh, football buddy yeah. uh, of mine. Your banter between you two at football. <laughs> well, you know, if we think we've got it bad, he's really got it bad with Plymouth. <laughs> Let's be honest. So a lot of people that I've got a lot of love for, and um, I just want to say thank you to all those people who I've worked with along the way. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, to all the people I haven't mentioned – you know, I've got a love for you too. Yeah, true, true community spirit we we have, don't we? And uh, if people want to connect with you and help you build that community a bit further, how can we find you on Twitter? What is your Twitter handle? Okay, I have to remember this. So it's schwabs, S-C-H-W-A-B-S, 52 at gmail.com. Stephen, thank you so, so much for joining me today on this uh, May morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Kit. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.